rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the final World Cup game podcast from The Times. I'm Alison Rudd. Joining me in the studio is Matthew Syed. Down the line, all the way from Brazil, is Gab Marcotti. And all the way from a secret holiday location is James Scowcroft. How many weeks have you been in Brazil, Gab? I have been here since the 8th of June. I've pretty much gone native. I've gone native in the sense that I've adapted to the, I've mutated to adapt to the climate and the uh, and, and the people and the, the dress. Um, and that part has been, uh, that part's been fantastic. What would you um, miss? What would you miss the most? I, it's just been a fantastic tournament. You realize how, how privileged you are to be able to to participate in events like this. Right. Well, if Mario Goetze was in the studio, I would no doubt slap his little face. That is, after all, what the entire German team did after he won the trophy for them. So, superb goal, won a superb tournament. But let's rewind slightly and very briefly to the semifinals, which we might not have done except they were seismic. Brazil-Germany, I'm going to stick with you, Gab. What do, I mean, what do you think... When people look back on the 7-1, they will conclude, um, was it as significant as it feels now? Do you think it will will remain such an awesome result? Well, Brazil's ever greatest uh, playwright uh, likened uh, 1950 and the defeat in the final, the the Maracanazo. Uh, He said it was like Brazil's Hiroshima, given that the country had never actually fought a, a war. I don't know what metaphor people are going to use for what happened in that semi-final. The sheer fact of seeing, you know, four goals in six and a half minutes is something I had never seen on a, on a football pitch. But then when you consider that it was Brazil, it was at home, you know, it was one of those situations where you were there with sort of 60,000 people and nobody knew how to react you sort of cycled through through the seven stages of of, of death almost you know without you know in a sporting sense obviously <laughs> i'm kind of at a loss for words now but I, I think it'll be one of those you know kennedy moments where we're going to remember where we were when we when we found out about this or or when we saw it and as often happens with world cup moments it's it's going to be one of those events that sort of will mark stages of our lives and I think that's regardless of whether you're you're Brazilian or not. Matthew Syed, did you do you think you'll always remember where you were when you watched Brazil dismantled? Yes, I, I was in the basement of my house <laughs> um, watching it on the telly like most of the people listening to this podcast and I think it was the most graphic capitulation that I've seen uh, in my life of watching sport. It was humiliating, it was intense, it was vivid. One felt a tremendous sense of admiration 
uh, for the Germans, the way that they so forensically orchestrated the uh, humiliation of their opponent. I did sense that they were rather apologetic in the second half. They seemed to be rather uh, regretful that their hosts were being quite so, quite so humiliated. But I, th I thought that it was a great insight into the psychology of very high-level sport. We saw a very competent team, not the best Brazilian team, but to many bookmakers are pre-competition favourites, uh, falling apart, panicking, unaware of how to deploy their technique and tactics. It, it reminded me very much of a batting collapse when there seems to be a virus of panic that infects the middle order once the first two or three batsmen have fallen. And it was really rather compelling to watch. Yeah, I, I, I agree about the, the way the Germans were in the second half. I sort of felt that Andre Schoeler hadn't been there for the team talk at, at halftime. He was busy warming up and he came out like a puppy thinking, oh, I'm going to score lots of goals. And he, didn't, yes. he seemed to be on a different level. Yeah, and the other thing that struck me was, was the response of the Brazilian crowd in that there was the initial shock, as one would expect, a, a great deal of disappointment as they began to absorb what was going on. But then in the second half, they started to olay the German passing. And there was a rather nice and, and impressive and rather endearing gallows humour that came to engulf the, the match in the second half. It, it did indeed have everything. James, do you, do you think if the Argentina-Holland semi-final had taken place first, that would have been a less cagey affair? No, I don't think so. I think, um, you know, if you watched last night, last night was very cagey. I thought it was a brilliant game. But I'm, I'm surprised we haven't seen more cagey games, if I'm honest with you. I, I thought that would be, be the case, really, the way, you know, if you watch the Champions League now, it's very sort of tight and tense a lot of the time because one mistake, i.e. if you take last night or what one goal can be the difference really. So I, I don't think so. And I think the way Van Gaal set up, I think Holland were always going to be defensive and can we count, uh, catch teams on the counter-attack? So no, I don't I think it would have been exactly the same. I just think regarding Brazil, I think there was almost an arrogance about their ability that just lacked discipline really. Um, and several times they, they, they just rely, maybe all Brazilian teams have done this, they relied on their attacking prowess to get them out of jail at times but without Neymar it just didn't happen for them I, I actually think there'll be a lot of good goodness comes out of this for Brazil because I think they'll sit down now and have a little rethink and and come again. Gab, um, James said that the final was cagey albeit a, a great match, is that an adjective you would adopt for that? There were chances, I thought Argentina were were sharper than certainly than they'd been in, in previous games Germany I think felt the occasion, and you know we, we we like to we love our stereotypes about German efficiencies and machine blah blah blah. But it's very obvious that some players on the night I want to use the term stage fright, but guys like Tony Kroos, um, like Mats Hummels, um, guys we deified in, in previous games. I think they really felt uh, the occasion. And there's one other thing which I think we need to say about about Germany, uh, which if you go through this tournament, I, I don't remember. Uh, a team which has been so much a team in the sense that different people pop up in different games uh, to make a difference. You know, against Portugal, it was Muller who stole the show. Uh, against Ghana, it was Kloza who, who saved their bacon. Uh, against Algeria, it was Neuer with his saves and coming off his line and, and, and sweeping. Uh, against France, it was Hummels at both ends of the pitch dominating. Uh, and of course, against Brazil, well, it was an implosion, but you know, we, we marvel at the rampaging Kadira and Crows. Uh, and then in the final, it was uh, it was your pal Goetze 
It was Jerome Boateng, who was an absolute giant at the back. It was Schweinsteiger in midfield. That's something that I think is a real credit uh, to to the manager. Matthew, do you think we got the final a great tournament deserved? I thought the tournament was great. I really did. And I think that it very nearly lived up to its early promise, but not quite. Some of those wonderful goals at the beginning, one rather hoped that it would become, that it would ignite and just take off. It was very, very good and probably the best in, in my lifetime. Was the final quite as good as the competition that built up to it? Not quite as good, I don't think. It was a ever so slight disappointment. I agree with Gabby completely that Germany were the best team. And I was very struck actually watching it that I wasn't, as disappointed as I thought I might be by Germany winning it. You know, that's normally something that one thinks I'll go, you know, not, not terribly happy about. But I think that was so justified. And they played with a certain verve, a collective endeavour. Um, I was very pleased for them. The thing that I regretted about the final and had very much hoped for was a, was a performance from, from Messi. I don't think he played badly, not as badly as some of the um, newspapers have said uh, today. But one hoped that a player who is such a joy to watch, who combines such skill, athleticism, ball manipulation, there's a level of genius about the way he goes about his business when he's on form, when he's in the zone, when he's really singing. And he was given a platform where he could really have converted the doubters. And he didn't quite do that. James, did, did Messi deserve to have doubters after the career he's had so far where most people would say at various points in it he has been the best player on the planet yeah i, I think it's unfair that, that i wouldn't say it's criticism but people saying oh he's not a world class he hasn't done it you know at this stage you, you can't take someone's performance at a world cup final and say they're a good player or they're not a good player you know you compare him to pele and maradona i think it was rio ferdinand said last night that Messi's done far, far more than both those players did at club level. And I think if you look now where, where club level is, it, it's almost parallel with the World Cup, the standard of the Champions League. You know, for me, it was, was almost equivalent to the, to the standard I saw last night in the final. And I think, without a doubt, he plays with better players at Barcelona who give him, you know, feed him the ball. If you look at the, you know, Xavi and Iliesta and, and Biscuits, and Biscuits, sorry, behind him who, you know, technically fantastic players that supply him with the ball time and time again. You know, he hasn't got that quality in the, in the Argentina side. Um, and I think he lacks sometimes every time he, we expect him now to get the ball, you expect him to beat three or four players and put it in the top corner. But, you know, I, I think he can hold his, his, his head up, really. I think he, he had a decent tournament. You know, if you look at some of the goals he scored, was it last-minute goal against Iran? You know, it's a special moment by a special player. You know, it just didn't happen for him last night, you know, but I think he should uh, be held up there with the grapes. Maybe we could finish this section of the show with a bit of myth-busting as far as Germany are concerned. Gab, in 2001, England beat Germany in Germany 5-1. And the myth, I think, is that everyone thought that was the moment Germany turned in on itself and decided they had to rebuild and rethink and not be quite so arrogant. But they, a year later, they were in the the final of the World Cup. Four years later, they hosted a brilliant World Cup and they came third. And then they came third again in 2010 and now they've won it. Haven't we got the narrative wrong with Germany? Aren't they just and always have been a very, very good country at football? There's a risk in judging a, a country's success simply by performances in World Cups or you know, judging whether as a movement they're a strong country, they're a deep country. The reality is Germany's reforms actually started, and I know I love the fact that, you know, England like to feel that they're responsible for this, but in reality it was after Euro 2000, 
in the first round exit that Germany tried to really take a long, hard look at themselves. Um, the fact that they reached a final in 2002 with a team that wasn't particularly good, um, you know, that, and this is to the credit of Germany, you know, they said, well, let's not let this paper over the cracks. We need to, we need to work at this. Uh, there's two ways you can look at it. You know, if Germany had lost that final, this would mean that uh, they hadn't won anything since 1996 and that they wouldn't win anything until uh, 2016 at the earliest, which would actually be the longest period without silverware, the longest drought in the history of German football. So if you wanted to go negative, you could easily look at it that way. You could look at this German team and say, you know, even 2006, they should have lost. They deserve to lose in the quarterfinals to Argentina and nearly did. You could look at 2006 and say they hosted the tournament and they went out in the semifinal, which, you know, frankly, for a serious nation is a bit of an embarrassment. But they, they, they focused instead on the good bits. They focused on what worked and they built off that. I think what they did, Gab, in 2002, they invested heavily in their academies, very, very similar to what English clubs are doing with their academies now. But the vast difference in Germany is that there's a clear pathway through to the first team, which a lot of these players who played last night have come through and then gone on to play for your Bayern Munich, etc., and other, other teams, which we don't have in this country. There's not that pathway. I think their, their facilities are better. I've been on several tours to Germany to play football. You know, the, the grassroots facilities are far, far better than what they are in, in England. Um, but definitely, I, I just think maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago, they just probably ploughed a little bit more money into their academies. Um, I think it was a, uh, a financial thing that happened. They, ju they just all of a sudden decided to go, right, we'll start at the bottom and build up. And, uh, you know, that will come to fruition. No problem. But, you know, it's fine lines, isn't it? If Higuain or Messi scores that chance last night then, you know, like Gab's right, you're talking about other things. I think you have to be careful that you don't judge the state of a country's football by their performance in the World Cup. I think you have to be careful, really, to sort of separate the two. But certainly I think they've got it right all round, and they deserve it. You know, they, overall they were the best team in the tournament. Matthews, the biggest winner, Angela Merkel, cleared, cleared her diary to be there to hug every German player. I think in the iconography of a country sport is very important. When we think of 1966, we tend not to think of the general election that Harold Wilson won, but we think of our triumph. And I don't doubt that Brazil will always remember 2014 for the humiliation uh, at the hands of Germany. And of course, Germany will remember this now as, as being World Cup champions. We tend to overinterpret its significance, I think, in economic and political terms. Uh, when we weren't doing terribly well at the Olympics, we thought it was a metaphor for the problems in our education system and uh, our economic decline. And I think this is rather overdone. I mean, if you want a, a good benchmark, you should be looking at the number of Nobel Prize winners and how many entrepreneurs are being developed. If you're thinking of uh, the social and economic environment. But no, I think in emotive terms and in symbolic terms, it is very important. I'm Alison Rudd, and you're listening to the Game World Cup podcast from The Times. Later, I'll be having a chat with Matt Hughes. In the meantime, we're going to pick, this is the nice bit, we're going to pick our player of the tournament and indeed our villain of it as well. So uh, we've labelled, well, I've always labelled it the Panini sticker of the week. This time it's the Panini sticker of the tournament. Who, on a personal level, have, has just won your heart, Matthew? Well, I, I often think that goalkeepers don't get quite enough credit for the jobs that they do. For that reason, I think I'll go for Neuer, who I thought was outstanding, clinical, good judgment. But a couple of times he came herring out and you just thought, what's he doing? 
but he, he timed it so well. And I think he was something of a foundation upon which Germany built their success. Mines James Rodriguez, I mean, he, he played beautifully, but I don't think we in England appreciated what he could do. When I close my eyes and think of the World Cup, he's the first face that pops into my head. So he has to be the player of the tournament. And I just wish he'd been able to go a little bit further in it. James, who's your standout player on a personal level? Um, I'm going to go for somebody who I think has done really well in the last two years and he's brought his form into the World Cup. I'm going for Ian Robin, who I thought had a fantastic tournament and looked a real threat every time he got the ball. And I think Robin's at 30s in the prime of his career um, and I think he's playing tr- fantastic football at club level and international football. And, you know, maybe if that chance where uh, Mascarano's great last-ditching tackle, I think was it an extra time or, or, or normal time, could have been Holland in the final, but I thought he had a great tournament. And you don't mind the fact that he admitted to diving when necessary? Well, I think it's you lot in the media that hype up diving. and Yeah, a little bit. But sometimes if you run into the box and you're running at speed and, you know, half the time you're trying to, to just tempt to defend to the dangle of the leg, aren't you? You know, that, that's an art in itself, really. But no, well, at least he was honest, wasn't he? He does go over a little bit too much, but... You know, I think he's got power, he's got pace, he can go on his left foot, he can go right as well. I think, I think he's turned into be a real, real top player and fulfilling his potential. And for you, Gab, who's the standout player? Can I choose a manager? No. You can choose a manager if you want to choose a villain, but we're going for standout players. You can't have a manager as a standout player because he's not a player. There was no player-manager <laughs> that I remember. All right, all right. James Rodriguez. Yeah, good thing. Um, you see, we're agreeing a lot, Gab, and I can tell you're not happy about it. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, It's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan romash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to i'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information to villains my villain is a manager Fabio Capello A for his dress sense oh my goodness I w- that's another image I can't shake from my head the uh, red tank top but also you know he's, he's becoming a man you, you kind of think why do p- he's obviously not very good at international management why has he got this huge contract and how did he manage to make Russia a team I've always had a soft spot for into probably the dullest team of the tournament uh, your villain James? I'd have to agree with you really I think Russia were the team maybe England run them a close second with the team that really disappointed and if you watch them they just had nothing about them at all and 
I think you have to go for Mr Capello, who was in charge of them, really, as the chief culprit, so I'll agree with you there. Matthew? Alison. The villain. Villain. Villain of the I'll World go for Matudi of France, the Ooh. midfielder. Um, and really because there was a challenge that he went for in the match against Nigeria where he was out of control and the studs rubbed down against um, a Nasi of, of Nigeria. And it seems to me it's a real symbol for... Well, I've met a lot of young players whose careers, potential glittering careers, were shattered by out-of-control, reckless, studs-high challenges. And we don't get to see the full level of, you know, we see the stars who have had their legs broken and have had to come out of the game, but we don't see the young people who never got the chance to shine. And I think FIFA needs to take a firmer stand on this. I mean, for what it's worth, he, he only got a yellow card. I mean, he should have been sent off. He should have, but it was certainly more reprehensible, more damaging than, than Suarez's bite. You're, make, you're making me feel guilty about picking a villain based on his dress sense now. Yeah, yeah. what's the matter with you? I mean, yeah. is it... <laughs> Anyway, Gab, who's your villain? Well, if I wanted to uh, stick up for the most statistically the most successful England manager in history, um, I could point out that the villain should be Igor Akinfeyev, who made two colossal blunders without which um, Russia would have been in the second round. But I won't go there. No, my villain is um, Velasco, the referee in the semifinal. Uh, sorry, in the quarterfinal between um, Colombia and, and Brazil. Uh, maybe I can redeem myself just by mentioning that there were far too many players suffering head injuries and concussion and then running back on the pitch. Uh, so at some point, <laughs> that has to be dealt with. So I promised you some Matt Hughes. Let's find out what he had to say about his experiences in Brazil. Matt Hughes, we haven't spoken to you during this most marvellous of World Cups. Perhaps you could tell us what your high points were over in Brazil. From a footballing point of view... Seeing James Rodriguez score that wonderful in the Maracanã, just a sunset over Brazil was pretty hard to top. And from a personal point of view, just being in Rio for the best part of the month was absolute privilege and a pleasure. I, I think people who watch the World Cup on TV will have been sick of the sight of that statue. Uh, even watching the TV last night at home, I, was, I thought the BBC were labouring it a, a tad, but it's hard to do justice to what a fantastic city Rio really is so to spend a month there surrounded by well behaved large happy football fans was, was fantastic tell me Matt when you're in a football stadium whether it's the Maracana or whatever uh, does the football in, in the same way that eating fish and chips out of newspaper tastes better is watching football in an iconic stadium where there's just passion all around and you can see the sunset out the corner of your eye does it make do you think it makes the football look better I think any backdrop makes anything look better. Personally, I was slightly underwhelmed by the Maracanã. It's not the stadium we kind of grew up watching on on television, grainy, grainy footage as children. It's it's a little bit identikit and a bit harsh, but almost slightly sort of soulless and, and modern. Having said that, when you from half from one half the stadium, you can see up to Corcovado, which is obviously stunning. Back, backdrop, and when, when you when you get a glimpse of that, it reminds you where 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 you are. But if you're sort of just looking at the pitch, you could almost be anywhere, which is a, a bit of a shame. I, the best stadium I went to was the one in Brasilia, which, given it's the second most stadium constructed anywhere in the world, it really should be. But that is quite a unique piece of architecture: very high, steep stands, columns all the way around the perimeter, and that feels like a special stadium. The Maracanã 
other than the setting, to be honest, doesn't. But um, when when it was full of 60,000 Argentinians last night, I'm sure it was a pretty amazing uh, amazing place to be. You're a notoriously fussy eater, Matt. Did you um, have a great <laughs> Brazil meal? Uh, the food was probably one of the lowlights. I'd subsist <laughs> on a diet. It's basically, all their cafes and corner shops are kind of the Brazilian equivalent of Greg's. <laughs> So, but, you know, when you're being paid to watch football in Brazil, you can't really moan too much about the food. No, let's not moan too much. But you do have, in uh, Monday's game, you do have a bit of a moan in that it was your wonderful job to um, pick the flops of the tournament. Was that easy or difficult job? I mean, did you feel you could you could have added another 20 names to your list or were you struggling to find players that you didn't think had given the tournament anything at all? Not just by picking the best team. It's very easy for certain positions, but some areas leave you scratching your head a little bit um with, with the flops 11 the sort of um curiosity or the anomaly is that you have people like david louise who've had nightmare games nightmare half hours but in other games have played reasonably well Thiago silver could you could put him in the flop of the tournament or in the team of the tournament based on his contrasting performances so you um you make a judgment call on whether it's fair to judge someone on the basis of one performance i try to look as a tournament as a whole and maybe wasn't so harsh on some of the Brazilian defenders as, as others, particularly Louise. But I think having said that, I did put in Danny Alves and probably Marcello, who seems to be full-backs in only, only name. Yes, you didn't actually put Marcello in your list, but anyway. You oh, should I put have. in Leighton Baines, didn't I? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which were a bit, a bit maybe slightly parochial and slightly harsh, but I, I did feel that his selection was symptomatic of the mistakes that Hodgson made really and he, he, he looked very ordinary against teams that you know, against an Italian team didn't even get out of the group like England so um, he, given that he replaced and is supposedly superior to one of the best defenders England have ever produced in Ashley Cole I thought he really underperformed uh, One un- unsurprising inclusion in your list of flops was Fred and I wondered if you might give us some indication a, why he kept turning up in the team, and two, why can't Brazil find a decent out-and-out striker? I think he kept turning up in the team because the only alternative was Joe. It was even worse, which if you saw him play for Everton, you would probably realise, why well, Joe, he came on, didn't he, in the Chile game and yep. missed an absolute sitter of an air shot, couldn't even connect with the ball. So that's how bad he was. Fred, Fred and Hulk, they're sort of symptomatic of Scolari's blinding loyalty and, and I think Brazil Scolari and the whole nation really they got hoodwinked by winning the Confederations Cup last year they beat Spain Fred scored goals and they, they kind of, the whole country assumed that that, that was representative of where they were and, and they got lulled into uh, a false sense of security really and Scolari wasn't able to change looking at Brazilian football as a whole there is a big debate to be had about where the flair players are it's, it's not just a centre forward they don't other than Neymar, they're short of creativity. Oscar didn't have a great tournament, and the sort of options off the bench, the Williams, the Ramirez, as we know from the um, Premier League, they're not classically Brazilian players. They're athletes, really. They're not. They're not um, creative players. It's, it's amazing, really, that you look at when you're looking, searching for those players. It's, it's, it's Germany who seems to have them in abundance, rather than Brazil and even Argentina. Argentina's strength on their run to the final was, was their defence and the odd bit of brilliance from Messi, but they, they're not producing the um, 
number 10s either. So um, it's, it's a bizarre anomaly. We need to look to Bavaria for, for the answers, clearly. <laughs> and was there a little, I wonder if there was a little devil on your shoulder saying, ooh, maybe I could put Messi in the flop of the tournament because he was um, a bit up and down. And I wondered, can you, do you have any theories as to why it turned out the way he did? I mean, it's a bit like the George Best story. Where did it all go wrong? I mean, he did, he did, he did win an award on Sunday night, but it, 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 it will be regarded as the tournament that passed him by, won't it? Uh, I, I don't really buy into that narrative, to be honest. I, I think we're all incredibly harsh on Messi and we expect him to score three, four, five goals every time he plays, particularly for Argentina. Last night, I thought he played reasonably well and if he was any other name, he would have been one of the top players for Argentina, sort of seven, seven out of ten performance. You've got to look at what he has to do. He collects the ball on the halfway line and he's immediately surrounded by three or four players. Most of them are trying to kick him. He still managed to create openings, ride tackles. His finishing wasn't quite up to it, but I think he's clearly struggling by injuries and fatigue. And I think we expect too much. And I think the idea that he's not an all-time great because he hasn't won the World Cup is I think it's absurd. Him and Ronaldo... Their goal-scoring record, both in terms of the quantity and quality over the last five years in Champions League and Spain, is unprecedented. Just because Maradona did it in '86 doesn't mean that Messi had to do it 20 years later. I think we're a bit guilty of romanticising the old, the old greats. I think if Maradona was playing in the modern era with the sort of fitness demands, the relentless games, three times a week, would he be able to continue to do it season after season? I'm, I'm not sure he could. So. I think we should give Messi a bit of a break. I'm Alison Rudd and you're listening to the Game World Cup podcast from The Times. So, it's over. I know, for one, I'm going to be a little bereft. Uh, I'm just going to miss the Stevie Wonder music on the BBC more than anything, probably. But is, is, I mean, there was so much spoken about Brazil hosting the World Cup. They couldn't afford it. Uh, The people didn't really want it. It feels now that it was a, a superb success in terms of, almost a superb success in terms of organisation and uh, bringing in love for the country. Looking ahead, what will be the legacy of this World Cup, both for Brazil and for football, James? You know, it's the best World Cup, certainly in my lifetime since Italia 90s. So I think we've got our love back for the World Cup because I think the last couple of have died a little bit and I think that's mainly due to it being hosted in a, in a football loving country you know if you look at the atmospheres that are in the stadium not only by the Brazilian fans the Argentina fans and everything so I think we've got that which we, I don't think we'll get in Qatar in eight years time um, so I think that'll be the legacy really that Brazil still can hold the beautiful game and although they lost 7-1 they're still probably the pioneers of uh, beautiful football. Matthew I mean does the fact that it was in Brazil and you know, you, you couldn't get the people out there to shut up about how marvellous it was. You know, even the sun sets, the sun will set differently in Brazil, apparently. Will, will that affect the way FIFA regards the voting for the next, well, for the 2022 World Cup, at least? I mean, you know, how, how can how can those nations compete anyway, let alone the fact that everyone seems to have decided it, that this too hot? I mean, Qatar's too hot. Hmm. I mean, like, it's very difficult to figure out precisely what 
reasons are being brought to bear by the FIFA suits, um, given what they've done and the defiance of logic. Um, for me, the thing about the competition in Brazil, of course, there was beauty in the country and it's a very popular sport there, almost like a religion. But it showcased to me the beauty of the game. I'm always astonished as a journalist on football how often people outside, even though it's very um, culturally significant in this country and beyond, how often footballers are often maligned, lazy, pig ignorant, and the game has really gone to the dogs. And yet, in actual fact, these are brilliant athletes, some of the most skilled people in the world who have come through a very fierce meritocracy and create moments of stunning beauty. And that header by Van Persie in the opening week, to me, was symbolic of just what football can do and why it's such a unifying art form around the world. And I think that the one risk to football going forward is jurisdictional. FIFA are so uh, inept that I think that it is not inconceivable between now and Qatar even that there will be a breakaway of some kind that domestic FAs may say we don't want to be under your umbrella anymore that some of the clubs may decide that they want to have their own league with their own jurisdiction and I think that could be a real threat to the ecosystem of the game Gab, would you go along with that? No, I don't think so um, I, the you know, there was a chance they had the opportunity and uh, and the right time to do it would have been would have been four years ago. Um, but instead, they, they they chose not to do it. The thing to understand, I think, about, you know, we talk about FIFA as if it were one entity. It's not. It's Sepp Blatter at the top, who um, who obviously has a million nails about him, but who tends to uh, move with the favorable wins. And I think the the reality is that he can be influenced. He usually gets his way, although he obviously didn't get his way with Qatar. The bottom line is I don't think the World Cup will be in Qatar because Blatter never wanted it in Qatar in the first place. The people who voted for for Qatar and backed it, um, most of those guys are no longer on the executive committee. And he can easily find ways for a refo if he should if he should choose to do so. Yes or no, this was the best ever World Cup? Uh, no. Very close. No. Okay, you are allowed another word then. Which one was? Um, Italian 90 for me. Ah, just because of the opera. Matthew, which was your best I'll, ever I'll say up? just below 1990. Really? Very close. Really? Very Gab? <laughs> I'll go close and I'll pick 2006. Right. Um, the Miller moment of the tournament, named in honour of Roger Miller. But given that you all have this big love in for Italian 90, you'll know exactly what that's all about. It's... The moment. It's the thing that surprised you that you fell in love with and you think, oh, mine is Iran, the country everyone hates. But during the World Cup, suddenly the West wanted to be friends with them. They had no players at all. They, they, they weren't allowed to have any friendly games to prepare because of um, international trade sanctions on them. Their kit shrank in the wash. When they did do a, a, a preparation camp, half the players didn't turn up, and yet, and yet, they were within seconds of beating Argentina. You know what? There are so many. I can't think of one single moment. One moment I won't forget is because I thought it was really funny. There was a giant grasshopper on um, James Rodriguez's on, on his shoulder. Um, <laughs> I just thought it was really funny. Fair enough. Matthew? The Van Persie header. Mentioned it already thought it was was beautiful yes that was nice james got to be gertz's goal last night that's what dreams are made of 
Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. All lovely Miller moments. So thank you, everyone, for listening to the Game Podcast from The Times. Many, many thanks to my guests, Matthew Syed, Gab Mokotti, James Scowcroft, and indeed Matt Hughes. Make sure you press that subscribe button on iTunes so you don't miss out on future productions from The Times team. The podcast will be back in the new domestic season with Mr. Marcotti. Go to thetimes.co.uk for a dose of digital deliciousness. And on that note, goodbye. Hi, I'm Tim Montgomery, the presenter of another Times podcast from the opinion pages called Did You Read? It's the perfect weekly snapshot of some of the best writing in the newspaper. Find out more by heading to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central and search Did You Read to subscribe on iTunes.